0: As I was preparing this message, I, I don't know why I started thinking of heroes. Well, I think it'll become evident why I was thinking of heroes. But um, I, 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 the first one I thought of was Iron Man. You know, and I know he's a superhero. Um, but I, I realized Iron Man came out 15 years ago. So those who went to see Iron Man in the theater, now you feel old. Um, but as I was writing my message, it was May 2nd, earlier this week. And I was like, I wonder when exactly it came out. And I like quickly Googled it, and it came out 15 years to the date as I was writing the message. So, in the providence of God, we were thinking of Iron Man. (laughs) But this movie kicked off Marvel's cinematic universe, at least how we know it today. Iron Man, along with the Incredible Hulk, Captain America, Thor, and others, uh, would lead to the first Avengers movie in 2012. And from that point on, every movie that comes out is just a superhero movie, I think. Um, There are no other movies to write these days, Uh, but these movies and their many sequels have told the stories of all sorts of Earth's mightiest heroes as they stand up against incredible evil to save those they love and to save the world, save all that is good. Now, switching galaxies, you might be surprised to find out that I'm a big Star Wars fan. Okay, I guess that's not really that big of a surprise, Uh, but this is an epic tale of good versus evil. And in the movie Rogue One, the character Jin Erso, against all odds, leads a ragtag group of rebels against the evil empire. She leads this group that doesn't have much hope, but rebellions are built on hope. She rallies them by saying, If we can make it to the ground, we'll take the next chance and the next, on and on until we win, or the chances are spent. What is a hero? Is it someone who does great feats of strength to save others? Is it someone who overcomes the odds? Is it someone who seeks the greater good of others? Doing right things in the face of incredible circumstances. Now indeed, these things all describe heroism. They all describe heroes. Today we're looking at a portion of a very familiar chapter of Hebrews. Some have called chapter 11 the Hall of Faith, or the Hall of Heroes. That sounds like a Justice League, you know, I don't know, like the residents of the Justice League, it's the Hall of Heroes or something. Now perhaps in Sunday school lessons, you've heard stories of these heroes and all their great acts of courage, bravery, whatnot, faithfulness. Be like Abel, be like Noah, like David, and others mentioned here in chapter 11. But I think what we see in the context of this letter as we've looked at these last few chapters and the first verses of chapter 11 and what we'll see soon in chapter 12 is that we need to avoid the error of simply moralizing these stories. Certainly there are moral lessons we can learn from these figures in scripture, but the author is showing that unlike the superheroes we see on the movie screen, moral lessons are not the main point because these figures are not the hero. The story of the Bible is the story of redemption, and the hero of the story is Jesus Christ. Not Noah, not Moses, not Abraham, nor David. Now their stories come into the story, but they serve the reader as arrows pointing the way to Jesus. And their stories are important. We should read them. But we need to understand why they're important. Chapter 11 of Hebrews serves to share their testimonies in the face of difficulty, struggle, difficult circumstances, persecution, and even death. All to encourage the believer to endure in the faith. Their testimony is not simply that of bravery or courage, but rather the testimony of faith in the hero, Jesus Christ. So this morning we'll look at faith through these figures Uh, From the Old Testament, that we see here in verses 4 through 7, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Let's read verses 4 through 7 of chapter 11. The author of Hebrews writes By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found. Father, we thank you this morning for bringing us together to sing together, to encourage one another, to see incredible things in the scriptures here today. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Let faith be stirred in our hearts as we seek to study a little bit about faith today. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for what he's done that he's not simply just another hero, but that he is the hero, that he is the Savior, that he is Lord, that he is King of kings, and that one day he will come for his people. We thank you that our faith is not empty and meaningless, but our faith is full of assurance. Our faith is full of Hope would help us to grow in the knowledge of you and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's look a little bit at Abel. Again, verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So who was Abel? I'm asking you guys who who was he (laughs) we read of Abel in Genesis 4 Genesis 4 1 through 10 now Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived and bore Cain saying I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord and again she bore his brother Abel now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground in the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices. See that Cain was a worker of the ground. He was a farmer. And he brought an offering from his field. Abel, a shepherd, brought a lamb of the firstborn of his flock. Nothing here is said about the condition of Cain's sacrifice. I assume that Cain brought the best of his crop, the best of his field, the best of the work of his hands. There's no reason to think that he was attempting to give God damaged goods or anything like that. But what we see is that God accepts Abel's sacrifice and he rejects Cain's. Why is that? Now, Genesis 4 doesn't really give us the answer to that question, but Hebrews 9 does. We read this a few weeks ago, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, the interesting thing about Abel is that he did not live under the law. He lived before the giving of the law. Abel, Enoch, Noah, and some of the others mentioned here in chapter 11 lived before the giving of the law and the formal institution of the sacrificial system. There was no law yet to keep. What do we see here? We see that Abel's sacrifice was in some sense foreshadowing all of the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament and also foreshadowing the sacrifice of Christ. We see that God had instituted this idea of the shedding of blood even all the way back when his parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, when the parents of Abel and Cain. God clothed them in the skins of animals. And that's the first incident, instance of an animal sacrifice to cover the sins of people. Adam would have taught this to his sons. And perhaps even God had shared with Cain and Abel himself, instructing them in this. So Abel seems to understand that his greatest problem is sin. And that in order to deal with sin, blood must be shed for forgiveness. And though his sin could not be taken away by the blood of an animal, he obeyed in faith. Looking to the promised one who would one day come and crush the serpent's head as promised in chapter 3 of Genesis. And so his sacrifice was offered in faith in God's promises. Cain's sacrifice looked to his own works, to his hands, his abilities. He grew these plants toiling away under the heat of the sun. And he presented to God his best. He presented to God the things that he had worked, the things that he had done. But as we've looked at through the letter to the Hebrews, God's economy for forgiveness is a blood economy. It's not your best gifts. Our best gifts are just not enough. Blood is required. And so today, we may offer some kind of alternative sacrifice when we look to anything outside the finished work of Christ that is the gospel. So even good things are works of our effort. And those are rejected by God for the forgiveness of sin. So it's not Abel's works, it wasn't his faithfulness, it wasn't his obedience you know, to, to all of God's commands that God accepted, but it was Abel's faith in God's promise. He was commended as righteous, so his faith in what the sacrifice represented. We see that Abel speaks, and that he demonstrated true worship of God through faith. And so today, his actions remain an example of faith and righteousness to us. Let's look at Enoch. Verses 5 and 6. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So Enoch is an interesting person to be included in this list of people. That we often call the hall of faith or the hall of heroes or whatever. Not much is known about Enoch. Outside of just a few verses in Genesis and what we see here in Hebrews and maybe a passing reference here or there, we don't know a lot about this man. From Genesis, we learn that he was the great, 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 great grandson of Adam. Perhaps the most interesting thing about Enoch is that he didn't die. That's what the author of Hebrews notes here. And we find the story of Enoch in Genesis 5, verses 21 through 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. You know, we as Christians believe some pretty crazy things. We believe a lot of things that are invisible things. We believe in God, yet we have not seen him. The Christian walk is a walk of faith and not of sight. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Through faith you have taken God and his word. About who he says that he is and who he says you are without him. Your sin problem. What Jesus did to take away sin. God has convinced us of these things. See, when you were born again, God the Holy Spirit actually changed your mind. That is what repentance is. God actually repents us. We often use that phrase to say, you know, we repent, but it's God who does the work of repenting. He's changing our mind. And so now you agree with God about salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you've sided with God against your sin. Yet these are mostly invisible things. Now, certainly actions of sin have been visible. But much of what we believe are these invisible things. We have the scriptures, and certainly those are visible. But they testify to some pretty crazy things as well. We saw in verse 3 of this same chapter that um, it says... The universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is understood by faith that God created the universe with the word of his mouth. It has to be accepted by faith. Now certainly there's evidence of creation. But the author says it's understood by faith. What happened to Enoch was crazy. He was a man like any other man. And yet he didn't see death. He was taken by God. again, we see here that God gave a commendation and it wasn't based on his works. It wasn't based on his law keeping. No law to keep yet. It was based on faith. Enoch believed God and this pleased God. The author here in verse 6, like a typical preacher, pauses his thought to make a point. He pauses to explain what it is that pleases God. And so just as the author does, we're going to take a brief detour here. We're going to look through the scriptures to talk more about faith and what it is that pleases God. Don't answer these questions out loud. But can you please God with obedience? Can you please God through being a morally good person? Can you please God by keeping the Ten Commandments? Let's hear what the author is saying and what God is telling us through the other scriptures that we're going to look at here. The author says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Paul says in Romans 8.8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Mike, next week, will be talking about Abraham, and perhaps he will reference this passage, uh, but I wanted to include it here, Romans 4, 4 and 5. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, this is not saying that there are two ways to become righteous, that you could work and earn it. It's just no longer a gift, but you've earned it. Um, or you can believe and it's a gift. No, salvation is a gift. It's, it's never something that is due to you. Uh, so it's, it's used here as an example Faith, belief, pleases God, not fleshly works. Faith, as Nate pointed out last week, is not a muscle to be flexed. It's not something you can conjure up or work up. Faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This phrase, it is the gift of God, refers not just to grace, it also refers to faith. These are gifts. Second Peter one one refers to faith as a gift. Simeon, or Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained, some translate that as received, to those who have received a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, Faith is received. And Philippians one twenty nine. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So suffering for the sake of Christ is a gift, but so is the faith to believe. So when we accept the finished work of Christ on our behalf, we act by the faith supplied by God's grace. Faith is simply breathing out The breath that God has breathed into our lungs. It's the breath that God's grace has supplied. Just as when Adam was created, God breathed life into his lungs. Faith is the breathing out of the breath of life that God has breathed into us. Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Faith in what Christ has done is our response to the good news. But that faith is supplied by God. Salvation is his work. And he is working that in you both to will and to work. It's the will of God that we believe in Jesus. And that's what pleases God. Faith pleases God. When Paul looked at all of his efforts, and if ever there was someone who could look at his efforts and be like, gold star, Mike, if you're giving out gold stars, Paul would have gotten one. But he says this in Philippians 3, 8, 9. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He had all sorts of efforts he could point to. And if you want to know what they are, just go read through Second Corinthians. He talks about them. But all of his efforts were beyond worthless. They were rubbish. They were waste. But righteousness from God came through faith. It was the faith that God supplied. And so we can say that it's God's pleasure then to make us Righteous through faith. So how do we receive faith? Romans 10:17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You know, when you consider that God created the universe with the word of his mouth, perhaps it's not so hard to believe that faith can come from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. If God can create everything out of nothing, then couldn't he create life in our hearts by his word? The power for salvation is in the gospel. When the good news of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, faith comes. Now, you and I don't control it, and I can't tell you why some believe and others don't. I can tell you that we're all deserving of God's wrath. But God in his love and mercy saves those who believe. And those who believe do so through faith which he has supplied. Let's read Hebrews eleven six 6 again. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We see two big thoughts here. Now we've been covering the first one already. We've been looking at it already that without faith it is impossible to be commended. Faith pleases God. The second big thought is that with faith, it is impossible to be condemned. Let's look at the bookends of Romans 8. Romans 8, 1 and 2, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Romans 8 closes with verses 38 and 39, For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is incredible. It's glorious. We cannot please God on our own, but we are made the righteousness of Christ Based on his work and his gift that he gives us of faith and grace. And thereby we do please God. God is pleased with you who are believers. Not by your works, not by your own merits, but he's pleased by faith. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And nothing will separate you from his love or from Christ himself. So it's by faith. But our faith, as Nate said, is not in faith. The object of our faith is what matters most, and the object of our faith is Jesus, what he did. So it's not about what you can do or what you should do. It's not a matter of believing harder, trying harder, just, you know, man, if you can just uh, maybe increase your faith 10%, you'll do well. No, the size of your faith doesn't matter. The one in whom your faith is in is what matters. And nothing will take you from his hand. And we see here in uh, verse 6 that he rewards those who seek him. And who, um, I'm flipping it a little bit here. And whoever would draw near to God must believe that he, that he exists. Faith unites us to the blessings of God. Nate said that faith looks. I, I really appreciated the way that he broke faith down last week for us. We see this in the lives of Abel and Enoch. They looked to the promises of God. They looked forward to the promises of God, specifically of the coming Redeemer. But this end of verse 6, that we believe in God through faith and um, that he rewards those who seek him, kind of draws us back to some of those crazy things that we believe, the invisible things that we're looking at. So we're not looking towards visible things. We're looking to some invisible things. Two affirmations are here. First, we accept the existence of God by faith. And second, we accept the promises of God by faith. Now, some of the best arguments for theism, that is the belief in the existence of God, are called the classical proofs for God's existence. Just a couple of them for you. The teleological argument claims the appearance of design and purpose in nature implies a designer. The moral argument claims that all people recognize some moral code of right and wrong. And there are some other arguments as well. But what the author is stating here is that the ultimate reason that we accept the existence of God is faith. It's belief. We believe that he has spoken through the scriptures, we believe that he has revealed himself in Christ Jesus. This is how he started the letter. Hebrews 1, 1 through 1-2, long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, it's certainly good to be able to have reason for what you believe. I encourage you to study. I encourage you to dig into those things. But at the end of the day, it's faith. Taking God at his word. He rewards those who seek him. This isn't a reward like one has earned something. It is the gift of grace and mercy given to those who trust in God's promises. What he has spoken to us by his son. We who are in the new covenant. We are looking in faith. We look back. At the work of Christ, his perfect one time sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. This is the already that Nate spoke of last week. We live between the already and the not yet. Faith also looks forward to the promise of Christ's return and the establishing of his eternal kingdom when our salvation is fully consummated and we'll live in the full reality of God's presence. Abel, Enoch, Noah, they all looked forward to the coming promises of God. But we as believers look both backwards and forward. And we look forward in faith and with hope. Hope is not vain, wishful thinking, as we might think of in modern terms. Faith gives our hope a rock-solid assurance of what is to come, though we do not know when. We don't know when it will come, but we know that Jesus will return. Let's look at Noah. Verse seven, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen and reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So who was Noah? We first hear about Noah in chapter five of Genesis. We find that he is in the 10th generation from Adam. His father was Lamech. Chapter six begins the story of Noah and the great flood. And, um, we're, Gonna read some portions of that. I didn't, I included all of it in the uh, text that you'll see on the screen, um, but I'm gonna jump around in it, so forgive me. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens for I am sorry that I have made them. I said sorry very Canadianly. (laughs) The thoughts that pop into my head, I can't help it. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah is a righteous man, blameless in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Skipping down to verse 22 after receiving all the instructions for the ark, it says Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So before God told him about the coming judgment on sin, before Noah obeyed and built the ark, we're told that Noah found favor. That is, he received grace. How did Noah survive the flood, this great judgment upon the earth? It's not simply that he built a really big boat He believed God and his promises. He was looking forward in faith to a redeemer. And so his actions of obedience flowed from faith in the coming promise. Again, we find some pretty crazy things, right? (laughs) Hebrews is affirming that Noah lived. That's not so crazy. But that there was a great flood. The flood was divine judgment against humanity's sinfulness. But we are told that those who are in the ark were safe. We don't always feel safe. We don't always, when looking at the things that are going on around us, feel like we're secure. We don't always feel secure in our salvation. A man once came to the evangelist D.L. Moody and said he was worried because he didn't feel saved. Moody asked, was Noah safe in the ark? Certainly he was, the man replied. Well, what made him safe, his feeling or the ark? The inquirer got the point, how foolish I've been. It's not my feeling, it is Christ who saves. The story of Noah and the flood foreshadows the cross in a really beautiful way. And just to give you um, a little preview of what's coming this year, at the end of summer, we're going to uh, dig in a little bit to the gospel in Genesis. A few years back, Derek did a series called The Gospel of Joseph. And uh, late summer, we're going to do a series for about seven weeks where we'll cover the gospel of Adam and the gospel of Noah. Then we'll take a break for a little topical series and we'll come back um, with the, the gospel of Abraham. What we see here in the story of the flood really pictures the gospel in a beautiful way. At the cross, God's divine wrath and judgment were poured out on Christ. Just like the waters of judgment flooded the earth. And Christ is the true ark. Those who have believed in Christ are in Christ, just as the family of Noah was in the ark. The believer is saved from God's divine wrath by being in Christ. The author of Hebrews says, by this Noah condemned the world. Those outside of Noah's ark were perishing. And today, those outside of Christ are perishing even now. Romans 1 speaks of judgment. The judgment that humanity is left in. And there is certainly a judgment to come for the unbeliever. But there is safety in the ark. So, believers, you who are in the ark, it's not your strength that saves you, it's not your actions that save you, it's the strength of the ark. It's the strength of the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith. And the object of your faith is Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, you are safe from the wrath of God. You are safe from the constant waves of the things that are happening around us as we see the harmful effects of sin. You're safe whether you feel like it or not because you're in the ark. If you've not yet believed, the invitation to you today is that the doors of the ark are still open. And so you can come in. You can find safety and rest. How do we apply a message like this to our lives today? Well, first we rest, knowing that it is faith that pleases God and not your works. Abel, Enoch, and Noah, they all believed God and it was counted as righteousness to them. God is not a bean counter. He's not measuring your actions uh, of obedience against uh, your worth and those things. He's not looking at your track record. It's really liberating to know that Christ's perfect record is actually your record. And so you're free to work from a place of rest, resting in Christ's perfect righteousness, knowing that you're secure because you're in him. You've been made righteous. And so now you can come alongside God and be building what he's building. Out of freedom, not obligation. Building things that will last, building up his people, building up his kingdom. You're free to love. You're free to serve, to give, to work, all from the storehouse of grace and not out of obligation. Free to gather with the body, free to live, um, spreading the aroma of Christ, the fragrance of Christ in your work, in your hobbies, the things you enjoy, with those in your neighborhood. You're free. You're not striving to earn. You're not striving to somehow get okay with God. Faith pleases God. Second, be encouraged by the testimony of faith of these three men and the others that we'll soon read. In chapter 11, when discouragement comes, remind yourself of these things. Be encouraged to endure in faith. Look to God and his promises. It's not an either or. We don't only look back or only look forward. We at the same time look back and forward. Looking back to the cross. And we look forward in faith to the promises of a better country. Our true home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that we are not without hope. We thank you for the testimonies of men like Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Though their lives were far from perfect, and the scriptures definitely testify to that as well, they believed you, they trusted you in your promise. We thank you for preserving their stories. To point us to the one in whom their faith was in. The coming redeemer who has now come. The mystery of the gospel has now been revealed in Jesus Christ. And so we can look back. As the end of this chapter will say. We have something better. Because we have Jesus. We look back in assurance of what he has already done. And we look forward in the hope of your eternal kingdom coming to earth. Perfection. No more suffering, no more crying, no more pain or death. Father, give us strength that we need to endure. Give us the grace we need And we know that you will because your promises are true. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.